0: You know, it's interesting, I I do my best to take advantage of whatever um, platforms I can to spread the gospel, so I post on different places when this service is being held and how people can stream it if they're not going to be here, and um, I posted on social media recently that I was going to, weeks ago, when I started this series in the Gospel of John, and one of the people who apparently follows me is a pastor from another state. And I said, I'm going to start this series in John. And his, his reply to me was, how long? I thought, how long what? How long do I preach? Uh, depending on your perspective, it could be too long. I don't know. It wouldn't matter. Um, so I replied to him. How long what? And he said, how long do you think it'll take you to get through the Gospel of John? And I thought to myself, why didn't you ask that? Why just how long? And I said, I don't know. Um, I've known pastors who, when they start a, a series in the Gospel of John, given its length and the different themes and messages that are in there, it takes them about four or five months. I knew one pastor who it took them two years to get through the Gospel of John. I am going to be somewhere in between that. I am not going to sit here for two years. I've got other things I want to say. Um, But it could take me a few months to get through. There is so much in this gospel that is important to our lives today. And definitely that includes the topic for today. John chapter 2, my subject, is do whatever he tells you. In chapter 1 of this gospel basically the gospel writer's goal was to uh, provide some initial identification he spent the first 18 verses of chapter 1 letting us know who Jesus was and he begins by saying in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god then toward the end of the chapter he lets us know who the John, who John the Baptist was and gives us identifications that we can I, that that we can can connect with John in that way. So now that he's created this sense of identification on two primary characters in this gospel, although John the Baptist will begin to fade from the gospel pretty quickly, now the apostle John is going to engage in what is the primary way of him telling this story throughout the gospel, and that's by providing these little scenes of Jesus connecting with different situations and people. We will see later in this gospel how, in fact, we will see in two weeks at the end of this chapter how he interacts with the money changers in the temple. We will later see how he interacted and connected with the son of a nobleman who was demon-possessed. We will get to that very famous interaction between him and Nicodemus, and I'm sure it's a story that many of you know when he spoke and, and made the connection with the woman at the well in Samaria, so many others will be there as well. These encounters relate so much meaning and give us so much clear insight. With that said, all of those wonderful encounters with deep spiritual messages for each of us, to begin the list of encounters, this seems like an odd place. That the first story that the gospel writer John would share with us is Jesus attending a party, basically, a wedding. Now, I don't know where the idea came from. I've tried to do some research to see if I could figure out when this started. The idea that to be truly committed to the Lord, truly committed, you've got to be serious. Serious? Hmm. That to be truly committed to Jesus and truly involved in ministry, You've got no time for frivolous stuff, like fun, or activities of that nature. After all, a sour, stern disposition is the mark of a faithful and mature Christian. Nobody better say amen. Thank you. (laughs) That's utter nonsense. John records in this gospel that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the first thing he records... Is Jesus involved at a wedding, at a party? And we can draw so many insights from this. Gospel according to John chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse number 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, what do you, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for the, by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did in Cana of Galilee was the first of signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. This story hits home for me in so many ways, especially since for my own son, he's just about 60 days away from his wedding day. It will be an awesome day, that wedding day. It will be beautiful. I've already put in my order for amazing weather, given that it's a ceremony on the beach. For all the joy, for all the wonder, for all the beauty of that day, it's going to be a day. Weddings in Bible times typically lasted for a week. Think about that for a moment. Especially any of you that have had to pay for a wedding. It would last for an entire week. Also, usually, the events to which the majority that were going on for the wedding, it was not simply that you would send out invitations to certain people. They tended to be community affairs. And you would invite guests that were far away as well. We as Christians want to be influences to our non-Christian friends and family. We want to make an impact in their lives. And one way to do that is to celebrate with them. Now, we don't celebrate the way they celebrate. But when something wonderful is happening in a, a, a friend's life, and he invites me to celebrate with him, I've had that happen many a time. Someone will say to me, I just got a promotion. Why don't you come have a beer with me? well, I'll come celebrate with you. And he'll, we'll go to some corner, a place that's in New York City, and he'll order a beer, and and the person will ask, what kind of beer do you want? And I go, root. And they usually pause. I don't know that we have that on tap. Listen to what I said. Root. (laughs) Root beer. We want to be in people's lives. And people's lives aren't just the messes they get into. They're not just the situations that they fall into that bring them issues and conflict. It's also being involved in people's lives in the good times. That gives us an opportunity to be able to point in the good times that aren't you blessed. Not aren't you lucky, but aren't you blessed that God is still pouring out and shining in your life. Yeah, we don't celebrate in the way that makes it difficult to remember the next day what it is you were celebrating. But being involved in people's lives means being involved in their times of joy. Now, I agree. It's going to, to depend on what they are celebrating. If they're celebrating something that's a, a, a clear violation of the word of God, I'm not going to be a part of that. But we really should seek to be present in the lives of those especially that don't know the Lord as much as possible. And that includes when they gather to celebrate. After all, this, this story shows that Jesus and those who followed him did. Now, a, a number of things interest me in this scene. John refers to the miracle that Jesus performed of turning water into wine Not as a miracle, but as a sign. The miracle Jesus performed wasn't an end in itself. And it just seems to me so much of the church, especially today, when we seek something and we're looking for God to perform a miracle, that when the miracle happens, then it's the end of the story, so to speak. But when God performs a miracle, he's letting us know he's revealing his glory. It points back to who he is. I'm not just grateful for the miracles in my life. I'm grateful to the miracle worker who is able to perform them. It was a sign. It pointed to someone. Or in this case, it pointed to Jesus. We believe completely Unlike many other Christians, but we believe completely that God still works miracles today. His power and the way he demonstrates his power has not changed since the early church. People have changed, but God has not changed. And we look for the Lord to move in mighty and miraculous ways. But it needs to be clear. We are not seeking signs. We are not following miracles. We are following Jesus. We seek the one who performs the miracles, and he is all we need. Whether or not the miracles come. Whether or not he's turning water into wine, or it stays just water. We seek him primarily because of who he is, not just because of what he does. If there's anything he did that does draw us to Calvary, it's Calvary and what he did there. John chapter 20 a story that I'm sure we will get to in a couple of months. But it seemed fitting to bring it up now. John 20, beginning of verse 24. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. Now Thomas, also called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus first appeared or came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were... And I put my hand into his side. I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Through the, and though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord, And my God. And here's the point. Then Jesus said, because you have seen, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen. And yet believe. Yes, Jesus. And we pray that Jesus reveals himself to those who struggle with giving their all to him. But we need to understand the blessing there is. When we're able to just look at his word, sense his presence, and believe just on that, that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He doesn't have to jump through a hoop or perform a miracle for me to acknowledge that he is the almighty God, the excellent one. He's Jesus just because of his great love for us. So, they're all at this wedding. A time of joy. A time of celebration. And a scandal arises. They ran out of wine. Now we need to understand the cultural times. To understand the weight of the scandal. Hospitality. In Bible days. Was one of the most important parts. Of anyone's reputation. As much as being a person of your word, as much as being honest and a person of integrity, your ability to be known as having great hospitality carried weight as it pertained to your reputation. You were measured by your ability to be hospitable. Basically, you were measured in large part by how well, how easily you could invite people from the outside into your inside places. And at a wedding... This was a major indicator for this family. And again, another hidden point. We really don't understand today this concept because we lead, and let's just be honest today, such separate lives. We really do compartmentalize our interaction with the various groups and circles of people that we have. We have these spaces for this group and spaces for that group, and we really kind of just kind of move in between groups as they are. And we all do it. And I'm not trying to assess that here. It's kind of the way our culture has evolved. I'm just drawing the distinction that so many say we need to go back to the way the early church did things. And one of the ways they did things is that, to coin a phrase that is used today or has been used over the decades, they were in each other's pockets all the time. They were in each other's presence all the time. They were in each other's lives all the time. But pastor, I really need my space. There are just times that life is just too people-y. There's just so many people out there. Fair enough, and we all need those times to recharge. Jesus took time away. But when it came to the overall perspective of that culture, hospitality was near the top of what anybody could be known for. This is how they did things. This was a scandal, a make-or-break moment for the bridegroom, who was usually the host of the wedding celebration. In fact, in many traditions, and this was kind of a surprise to me, at that time, a scandal of this kind, and this is kind of funny, given how litigious our current society is, if this would have happened back then depending on how the mood was of the people who saw that the wine ran out, they could have brought a lawsuit against the family. I would have loved to have been the judge at that lawsuit. So why are we here in court today? Well, they ran out of wine at a party. Really? Is that why we're here? That's how serious breaches in hospitality protocol were. That's how they were taken. And that's the context of Jesus' mother coming to him and saying, there's no more wine. It really wasn't, oh, there's no more wine. No, it was, there's no more wine. This was a panic moment. Mary must have been close to those who were organizing the wedding for her to know this. Because this would have been something they would have wanted to have kept quiet until they were able to figure out a solution. She also must have been close to the groom's family to care so much. In this panic moment, she went to Jesus. Church, good idea. In your panic moments, go to Jesus. In your times of difficulty and confusion, go to Jesus. She doesn't ask him for anything specifically. She just mentions that there's no more wine. She just gets him and lets him know the situation. And probably with a bit of animation and emotion. So where do you go? in those panic moments? Do we turn to people to have them try and solve our deep issues? Do we turn to people to kind of yell at them if they're the responsible party as to why I'm in this panic moment? Or do we go to people just to vent all of life disappointments when one disappointment arises and it begins this cascade effect? Or do we go to Jesus Can you guess where my recommendation is going to be? Go to Jesus. Let me be clear. Jesus gave us the body of Christ. I am firmly committed to the truth that God's people need to be there for God's people. We are family. We are connected, as I say always lovingly to all of you, often as I can. I love you, and I I demonstrate that by saying you're stuck with me, and we're stuck with each other. We are family. We need each other. I don't believe, and nor will I ever, the phrase, all I need is Jesus and no one else. That idea is not supported anywhere in God's word. And the relationships that we're going to need in times of panic, we need to build in times when it's not panic. If the only time someone comes to me is when they're in trouble, but doesn't come to me when they're feeling good, that's a cause for concern. That's a broken mindset when it comes to relationships. We build them like when we do have fellowship, when we're having a wonderful time in church. And the sun is shining. And for now, the second day in a row was 70 degrees after it poured last weekend. Isn't God good? So that's how we build the relationships. But we go to Jesus when we're in this panic moment. So back to the story. On the surface, at first glance, and let's, again, be real, Jesus' response might seem a bit disrespectful. Because, again, I know he's Jesus, but this is mom. He says, woman, why do you involve me? If your child said that to you, let's be honest, what would you do? Well, no, don't tell me what you do. do. Don't, don't, don't be grabbing for no sticks or bats or anything close. <laughs> Ladies, how would you respond in that situation if your son and daughter addressed you in that way? So again, we need some cultural context here. The scene is not taking place in 2023. This is in first century Palestine under Roman occupation. Actually, and it might be hard for us to understand this, this was him calling his mother just woman was actually a polite, respectful way of addressing any woman, especially a relative. This was also a respectful way to address specifically a wife or a mother. You may recall, it's the exact same way he addressed his mother when he was on the cross, and she came to him, and he said, woman, behold your son. This was no disrespect. He was acknowledging her place in his life and acknowledging that connection. And then the second part of his response is even deeper. My hour has not yet come. We need to be clear. All of the situations in life that come up, sometimes they can just take us off our game, as it's said. They can come up and we have a plan for this and for that. And things come up and just kind of move us off being balanced. Jesus was always focused on why he was here. He came to bring salvation to the world. He followed his father's plan, not anyone else's. Situations that arose unexpectedly didn't take him off his focus or his plan of what he was here to do. And I wish the church in this country could walk this way more often. We react so much to what's going on around us. Instead of being the church that Jesus has called us to be, we change because the world has changed. We react because the world is acting. We call We are called to love our neighbors. And we're to love them whether they're lovable or not. Now that seems like one that we can all get behind. We're also called, back in Matthew chapter 5, to love and bless our enemies. You can say amen to that if you want. With as much energy and vigor at the idea of blessing your enemies. We are called to pray positively for those who persecute and use us. Because I've heard people say, well, I pray for the people who use me. I pray they fall down. I pray they have an accident. That's not the kind of prayer Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 5. We pray that God blesses those who spitefully use you. That means who use you and it was completely intended with you and mine all along. That's what the church is called to do. And instead, in my opinion, the church has decided to start wars and and fight instead of being the church. Yes, take a stand for what is right. Stand on what is God's word. And that includes his love. But when people start to disrespect the church and devalue the church, I see too much of the church giving it right back. Well, since you're going to disrespect me, I'm going to disrespect you. Because you devalue me, I'm going to devalue you. That's not what we're called to do. We need, like Jesus did in that moment, stay focused. This is why I'm here. I will stand for those who choose to walk in the way that the Bible presents as good and moral and decent. I will not embrace what the world calls good, what the world calls moral, what the world calls decent, because it's nonsense. But last I checked, God is pretty big. God is pretty powerful. And although he wants me to stand, he really doesn't need my help in defending him. Now, when my kids were small, as parents, our job was to defend them, to protect them. But God can take care of himself, He's God. I often believe we've lost our focus. I will worship Him, I will proclaim His goodness, I will sing His praises. I'm less interested in, and you need to understand my heart when I say this next sentence. I am less interested in exercising my rights as an American citizen than I am in walking in the joy of being a child of God and being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's my focus. Now, part of that is being involved in this culture, in this country. But when I get to heaven one day, the first thing Jesus is going to do is not ask me for my passport. He's not going to ask me, where did you come from? And see how I can clear customs. We need to be focused. We are ambassadors here. Which means this is not my home. Heaven is my home. The kingdom of God is my home. That is focus for the church. So Mary and Jesus have this exchange, and Mary turns to the servants of the celebration and gives them the best advice anyone has ever given anyone else in human history. Do whatever he tells you. Somebody say amen to that. Do whatever he tells you, verse 5. When you are facing various decisions in life, when you are having difficulties with people in your life, when you are facing uncertain future, when you yourself are in an An emotionally dark place. The thing to do is whatever he tells you to do. God's holy Bible is filled with wonderful, wonderful ways of life and living. And it's filled with a number of commands to do whatever he tells you to do. Jesus himself says in John chapter 13, which we'll get to in a few weeks. If you love me, keep my commandments. So the greatest demonstration we can have of God's, of our love for God, is to do whatever he tells you to do. He tells you to do it So in many situations of life. He also doesn't just tell you what to do, but how. Like when he says, like, like when the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, that we're to speak, the, speak truth, but in love. I've heard so many people say that phrase. Some appear to believe that just being willing to speak truth means you're doing it in love. So the attitude that which you speak it with doesn't matter. So that the tone of your voice in how you speak it doesn't matter. So that the volume of your voice doesn't matter. I don't know about you. It's hard for me to receive something in love when someone's yelling at me. I don't like to be yelled at. Anybody like to be yelled at? That's strange. I don't I don't. You would wonder why I was a sports official for 15 years when anytime I walked onto a ball field, that's all I did, I get yelled at. <laughs> and the expression on my face when you're allegedly speaking truth and love to me doesn't matter. Yeah, all that does. If the person to whom you are speaking truth to can't figure out the love part, then the love part has to be questioned. And the fulfillment of Ephesians 4.15 isn't there. If the only person who feels better after you speak in love is you, that's a problem. Sometimes love will be direct. Sometimes love will be stern. And yet when it's a situation that requires it, love will be animated. But for love to come through, there needs to be a relationship. So that's why, from my perspective, it's real difficult for me to speak the truth in love to someone I've just met for the first time, and I have no clue who they are. They have no clue who I am. So without being asked to, in this situation, Jesus fixes the situation and prevents the scandal for the bridegroom. How does he prevent it? By turning water into wine. And this is where us Pentecostals begin to squirm in our seats. I've heard that verse in John chapter 2 interpreted so many ways. Well, it really wasn't wine. They were so drunk at this point, they only thought it was alcohol. Hmm. Well, they were the jars that they were putting the water in were also used for the wine. So there was some residue there from the wine. And so it kind of mixed with the water and it tasted like wine. Really. And this one is recent. I only heard it once, but it made me laugh. Well, you have to understand and to try to relate it to something relevant in today's cultural context. Jesus used his Jedi mind powers to convince the people that what they were drinking was wine? Am I the only one that sees how ridiculous any of these answers is? Traditionally, the church has stood against the use of alcohol, not even just with the, with, with the rise of the Pentecostal denominations. The thing is, the Bible doesn't stand against the consumption of alcohol. It stands against the abuse of it. It doesn't stand against drinking, it stands against being drunk. It, just like it doesn't stand against eating, but it stands against gluttony. Just like it doesn't stand against talking to people, but it does stand against gossip. Bottom line, I don't believe Jesus was trying to trick anybody. The Son of God didn't need to perform Jedi mind powers from Star Wars to be able to convince people that this water was wine. The fact that something can be abused doesn't mean we refrain from using it at all. Now, people need to know themselves. If you're in a place that you're part of some type of recovery, you need to understand what your weaknesses are and what your frailties are. And for you, the situation might be different. The master of the feast tasted the wine and commented, this is the good stuff. In fact, it's the best stuff, and it doesn't make sense. Because, again, culturally back then, you would have put the best stuff first and their mindset was, well, by the time we get to the other wine, people are going to be less able to distinguish things because they've had too much to drink. So the good stuff usually came out first. People save the lesser quality stuff for later when people can't tell the difference. So the idea that they were too drunk, but this was given not to the people. This was not just a comment from the general population that was at the wedding. This was from the master of the feast who was working the wedding. I am pretty much convinced there was no way someone who was getting paid to work the wedding from end to end for an entire week that he was drunk at this point. It was his job to stay alert and be aware of these different situations. Does our culture have a problem with alcohol? Yeah, it does. Will outlawing it morally or legally resolve that? Well, all you history buffs, how well did prohibition work? Do I believe Jesus, with his supernatural power, turned water into fermented wine? Yeah, I do. Could I be wrong? Yeah, I could but so could you if you disagree with me. But I also believe him turning water into wine is not the main part of this story, of this passage. Jesus was comfortable in celebrating with sinners. Do we tend to forget that his, one of his many titles that he wore with honor was that he was the friend of sinners? He didn't mind being associated with people that the religious establishment had an issue with. He was comfortable with parties, not just in general, but even with people who didn't understand who God was. He was comfortable being their friend. And he was focused on his mission. And I am here to reveal my glory. The end of that passage says that because of this miracle, this miracle, that the disciples believed him. I would have thought they would have believed him a little sooner than this. And if they were going to believe him, then it would have been when the demon-possessed boy was was healed and set free. Or when the various people who were healed of blindness were healed. Or when someone who was raised from the dead was healed and, and brought back to life. But no, in turning water into wine in this situation, in this cultural context, it says the disciples believed him. He revealed his glory. We have this mindset that God, reveal your glory to me. And we're looking for this Hollywood scene produced by Cecil B. DeMille. And I'm confident that most of you know who Cecil B. DeMille was. That it's going to be a cast of thousands, and it's going to be something miraculous. God revealing his glory can be in the everyday stuff we do each moment. Jesus, reveal your glory. You know, when I go into the city three days a week and I travel the Long Island Railroad and when I get to Penn Station, I get on a subway train to come up to 8th Avenue and 50th Street. I walk into my building and I sit down at my desk. And I, every day that I'm in the city, I text my wife and say, arrive safely. Why do you do that every day? Because God got me there safely. Was that really God working in your life? If you understood the city like I do, yes, that was God working in my life. He is revealing his glory to me. Have we become so desensitized to the little things that God does that we only shout when the big things happen? When I get to my desk, I give God praise for him getting me there safely. And then I put it in my order for at the end of the day, now let's finish the work, Lord. Get me home safely. So what are the simple ways in your life that God reveals his glory? Yeah, we love it when the big things happen, but how about the little things? How about the things that so many people could pass off? So many people, especially who are not believers, could look at and say, yeah, you give God credit for that, but that happens for everybody. Yeah, he reigns on the just and the unjust. He shines blessings on everybody. The fact that the majority of humanity today doesn't give him credit doesn't change the fact that it's still Jesus revealing his glory. Amen. Mary gave great advice. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. That's never going to steer you wrong. I have never regretted following the word of God. Never. Has it put me in difficult situations? Yeah. Yeah. Has it put me in situations where I was the odd person out? Yes. Has it put me in situations where everyone around me thought I was nuts? Well, they think that anyway. But yeah, they have. But I, have I ever regretted saying yes to Jesus? No. I have regretted the times I've said no. Or the times I've said, Lord, I hear you. I sense you. Let me give it some more thought and as I've shared in my own testimony as far as giving it more thought with going forward in ministry and becoming a minister, that more thought lasted 10 years, 13 years. And each step of the way, in little ways, God revealed his glory. His revealing of his glory is not to entertain us. It's to get us to see that following him is the best thing we could ever do. That following his ways of dealing with other people, following his ways of being hospitable, following his ways of showing mercy and kindness, especially to those who don't deserve it, do whatever he tells you to do. Stand with me, please.